I'm Anthony Walsh and this is the Roadman's Cycling Podcast, the show where we empower you with tools to optimize your health, your happiness and your longevity. On this podcast, we love to celebrate extraordinary feats and the indomitable human spirit. Today, I'm diving into an awe-inspiring story of endurance, teamwork and sheer determination. In June 2022, a remarkable couple, Steve and Laura, known as Stella Tandem, embarked on a daring adventure from the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin. Their mission? They wanted to set a new world record by circumnavigating the globe on a tandem bicycle. For 180 days, they faced monsoons, illness, border closures, and even a motorcycle collision. Despite these challenges, they triumphantly returned to the starting point, achieving a lot more than just a record. Today, I sit down with Laura and we unravel the story of this incredible journey and the resilience that drove them to pedal their way into history. Here's a little taste of what awaits you today. Yeah, it's kind of made it seem real. And I think we're now at the point of going, oh my God, we did this. I mean, we literally stood up in front of a crowd of people recently and I've kind of I've read out the record to them and got a round of applause. And I was like, that was us. Yeah, we did that. That's amazing. We wanted that kind of level of seriousness and that, you know, yeah, somebody might go out and beat it, but we want them to have tried blood to, to have done that. We did have a rather nasty crash in Malaysia where we got piled into the back of with two kids on a motorcycle that were just racing. And that was that was a real kind of moment where we had to like weigh up the safety of the trip and it was like, do we even want to continue with this? Before we get into today's episode, I have some exciting news to share with you. It's been a game changer recently for me, making a marked difference in my performance, especially when it comes to my sleep. Let me introduce you to Pillar. Pillar is a company that's on a mission to fuse pharmaceutical precision with sports supplementation for athletes just like us. Okay, so we're all familiar with electrolytes and carbohydrates in our race preparation, but Pillar's taking a different route. It's focusing on something called micronutrition. It ensures you're ready to perform even before you hit the start line. It's all about promoting a good night's sleep. It's facilitating effective recovery and replenishing those critical micronutrients so you can perform at your best. Over the past month, I've been incorporating Pillar's triple magnesium into my routine. Every night, I take it 30 minutes before bed, and I've seen a remarkable improvement in my sleep quality. You'll know that I'm back using a Whoop device tracking my sleep, and the results of that improvement are there in black and white. I've had about a 10% bump in my restorative sleep since I started taking Pillar. I'm waking up, feeling refreshed every morning, ready to attack work, podcast, training, and just the next day in general. But don't just take my word for this. Try it, and let the data on your fitness tracker tell you the story. So if you're ready to elevate your performance and your sleep quality, why not give Pillar a try? Head over to pillarperformance.shop and use the code ROADMAN on your local website for 15% off your first order. Or for US listeners, head over to thefeed.com forward slash pillar and use the code ROADMAN for the same 15% off your first order. The details of both of these are in today's show notes. Now let's get into the show. Laura, welcome to the Roadman Podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It's a crazy journey. I couldn't but talk about this journey. Having <laughs> ridden tandems a little bit myself, I fully appreciated logistical, the person dynamic with between the stoker and pilot on this tandem journey. So could you set this up a little bit for us and talk to me about like, why the hell would you do this? 
<laughs> it's, a, it's a very good and very valid question, I must admit. I, I suppose it stems from the fact that um, both me and Stevie are, are avid long-distance, ultra-distance riders, but we very quickly got into the tandem riding as well. Um, and then that was a natural progression for that those distances to get longer and longer. So, yeah, it's it's essentially our thing is we like to ride bikes a long way. And one of those bikes is a tandem bicycle. So we were kind of aware of the challenges we would face um, being sat on the same bike for six months ahead of all this. But yeah, that that was a big part of it. And I think, you know, I think if there's any record we were going to go for, it was going to be this one. My fiance co-hosts the podcast on a Friday with me and she had no cycling background up to a little over a year ago, maybe two years ago now at this stage. And she's got into cycling, but we've never attempted the tandem. Like we rode down for a bag of chips on the tandem when I was racing the tandem internationally, but we've never gone any distance. And I don't know why it's never really occurred to me. We've always ridden, even we went bike packing last week. And even though we're at quite different levels, she sat in the wheel, which does pose a challenge because she's working pretty hard all day, even in the wheel. And then we kind of had the constraints of daylight where I need to keep the chain tight enough and kind of keep the average speed up to actually make our destination on time. Did you start with just riding solo bikes and have a mismatch in ability like that? Or was it straight into tandems? Uh, no, no, we both rode solo bikes. So I'd always been a quintessential commuter. I rode bike everywhere, all through uni and then through work. Um, but I'd never really done it as as for sport. It had been like a hobby and a way to get around, but I'd never got serious about it. Whereas Stevie was quite the opposite. So he'd he'd started riding quite seriously from a young age. I think he did his first 100-mile ride when he was like 11. <laughs> um, and he got into, he did a bit on the track and, you know, a bit road club. So he'd got quite a Palmares when I met him. So he got me into the sportier side of it. But admittedly, that to begin with, that was on solo road bikes and the tandem. We just kind of started bobbing about fun. But then... Yeah, it seemed to just progress into the tandem riding, getting more serious and longer rides. And yeah, there was a, a bit of a kind of, a, you have to get used to to a tandem if you're, I think it's sometimes harder if you already ride a bike, especially being a stoker, because you sometimes have to, you have to relinquish all that control. So you don't have gears, you don't have brakes, you can't see where you're going. And it actually took quite a while for me to readjust to not having those controls and to be able to put all my faith in, in him on the front to kind of get get to the point where we were both comfortable enough to kind of extend the distances. And actually, I'm, I'm not sure what it's like with the dynamic between you two guys in terms of weight, but I know when I've piloted somebody of a similar weight on the back as a stoker, even standing up on the bike is an issue because if they stand up at a time I'm not expecting to stand up, it kind of throws the center of gravity across. So even preparation for this event, that was my, my very first thought went to, I've done some five, six, seven hour rides on the tandem, but my ass is absolutely killing me after it because you stand up so much less than you do on a solo bike. Like you don't realize until you get on the tandem that out of every corner, you're typically standing up to accelerate. Every little rise, you're standing up to accelerate. You're standing up to stretch your back and that helps a lot. And when you don't have that outlet, you really, really notice it. Did you have specific preparation to get used to that, you know, different stimulus? Yeah, I mean, we were doing a lot of tandem riding in the lead up to this, but there's, there's only so much preparation you can do. And yeah, it's it's actually, it's really true. You, you just can't get out the saddle as much. And especially on the bike, as we had it, you know, we were fully loaded. So the bike plus gear was well over 50 kilos. 
we do have quite a discrepancy in, in weight and height. So Stevie's like six foot two, I'm five foot two. So, you know, he's, he's a lot larger than I am. But even with me being quite a bit lighter on the back with all the bags on, getting out the saddle on this thing was just not really an option. So yeah, we spent six months essentially sat in the saddle. And one of the big issues at the back end of the trip was Stevie's saddle sores. Um, we just couldn't do anything about them. They were just getting worse and worse. But there was no option but to sit in that saddle every day. The team dynamic is interesting in tandems. It's like if somebody hasn't ridden it, it's like nothing you'll ever experience on a solo bike. The closest comparison I would say is something like team pursuit where you're only as strong as your weakest unit. Did you have any difficulties with managing that team dynamic with stuff like the saddle sores where he's like, I really need to stop and you're like, no, we really need to push on or, you know, did it cause tension? (laughs) Um. I don't think he caused tension in in that sort of way. It was more that he, you know, it's just so tough on him that he was often in a really bad place and really grumpy. And I'd have to almost like take that on the chin a bit because that's not, that's not him necessarily kind of, you know, impacting it on me. It's, It's more that he's just, yeah, he is so sore. He just needs an outlet for that. And I'm the closest thing there. And yeah, towards the end, it it came more and more apparent. We had like very separate roles. So he did a lot of the bike maintenance. And obviously he had kind of the more mentally demanding job kind of steering the bike. And I was trying to take as much on as I could. So trying to like organize all the accommodation and where we're going to eat, what we're going to eat and do all the logistics. So kind of having those separate roles kind of helped quite a lot, I think, because it meant that we could try to be working our own thing as well as kind of supporting each other at the same time. It puts a unique strain on a relationship. Did it put any strain on your marriage? Um, I would say not. I think, you know, if anything was going to break us, that would have. And, uh, you know, there's, there's times Steve was going to go, this is all your idea. What on earth are we doing? But at the end of the day, we were both so committed to the record. We we couldn't do it without the other person. So um, there would be no record. So I think, you know, it's like what doesn't make you makes you stronger in a way. Um yeah, it's not to say there weren't some really, really tough times out there and it was really, really hard. But yeah, I think we kind of knew deep down that our goal was the same. How did you even go about planning that? What was the times I've gone bike packing? I've kind of sat out in the morning and I'm like, okay, based on I pull up an app like Windy. If anyone's not using Windy, it's brilliant because, you know, you can cover so much more distance. Sounds obvious with a tailwind and a headwind. But when you're doing it day after day, you really don't want to be battling the long distances in the headwinds, especially if the wind is changing the next day. Did you set out in the morning and kind of have a target of, okay, we're going to ride 150 kilometers today and then have accommodation booked in that place? Or did you have support vehicles or talk me through the kind of logistical part of it? Yeah, so there was there was no way we could afford support vehicles all the way around the world. It was just out, us out there, so we, we you know we were responsible for the whole thing, and so that was mainly my role was all the logistics. So we had a set route, but of course there were deviations to that for various reasons along the way. But essentially, the day to day, depending exactly how we where we were and how we were, I think usually the night before we'd be looking at the weather forecast, and we were using um, an app called Epic Ride Weather that kind of mapped it to your ride as oh, well. Brilliant as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's really brilliant. good. It's free as well, I think. Um, yeah, I think you get a free version of subscription, um, but yeah, that was just so we knew like where the wind was coming from every day, how strong, what the temperature is going to be like, and we could kind of guesstimate our kind of how far we we're going to go that day based on elevation and everything as well. So I think our average for the whole trip is something like 108 miles a day average. But obviously some days we had a block headwind, some days we didn't. Sometimes we got massive elevations, sometimes we didn't. So, And especially climbing with the tandem fully loaded, yeah, yeah. elevation must have been a challenge. 
the Rockies were epically tough. It was just like <laughs> three or four days. It just felt like we were going. We obviously we had descents. It, just, it felt like you know just going solidly uphill. It was so heavy. But yeah, so we'd be kind of booking accommodation sometimes the night before, but sometimes even in the morning, depending on how we felt. But yeah, it was very much a kind of day by day thing. You couldn't plan more than like two or three days ahead, max. So what did a typical day look like when I went bikepacking? It was, we tried to cover 200 kilometers a day last year in Spain and we kind of broke it down as we get up, wouldn't have breakfast, ride 50 kilometers, stop for breakfast, ride 50 kilometers, stop for a coffee, ride 50 kilometers, stop for a bit of lunch, ride 50 kilometers and then we were there. And that was kind of our every day. Did you have a similar type system or did you just totally wing it? Um, no, I think we did kind of have a system. I mean, particularly towards the back end of the trip, trying to keep Steve kind of well-fed and energized was was important. So, but we did end up with quite remote places as well. So I suppose like the ideal day would be, um, we'd be staying in like a motel so we could get up, have teas, coffees and a bit of breakfast, probably ride for 30 or 40 miles and then stop again, you know, and it's usually just a, um, a gas station or a takeaway, you know, a, a coffee shop something like that that's a glamour people don't realize isn't it yeah yeah you know mcdonald's is the ideal because you can be like in and out in in half an hour and they've got toilets and everything but yeah it was just yeah and then do the same again stop like mid-afternoon and then pile on to dinner and we'd probably be getting in like six six seven o'clock in the evening on a not so great day but a bit earlier than that would be a bonus but then you've got to do everything else as well so I've got to source dinner, so I'm either like nipping to a nearby shop or trying to find a takeaway. Ideally, we wouldn't go out for dinner because that would take too long. But then we'd have to like wash ourselves, wash all our clothes. I'd have to do like all the admin for the next day. Steve was often having to do some like physio and things like that for various problems he had. So before you know it, it's like nine, ten o'clock at night and you're shattered. Sounds like Steve was coming apart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he had a really tough time. He picked up like a parasite in India and. Just after that, it was just trying to keep him healthy was like a big challenge, yeah. Winter is on the way and as the dark and cold days close in on us, we're all beginning to think about the next few months of indoor training. Every week I get emails and DMs asking about my dream indoor training setup. I've already got it. For me, the thing that's had the biggest impact on my motivation to train indoors, it's having a walk bike. There's no faffing around putting bikes onto a trainer. The walk bike's just there. It's ready when you are. Having it there just removes all those friction points. No more 10 minute setup, unfolding legs, banging my knees off stuff. No more connection issues. It just works every single time when I need it. There's zero setup and it feels exactly like being out on the road. I get to talk to the best riders in the world every week on this podcast. And guess what bike they all recommend? The walk bike. We're partnering with Whatbike to give you 10% off the Whatbike Adam when you use the code ROADMANTEN at checkout. That's ROADMANTEN at checkout. If you're considering a dedicated indoor bike heading into the winter, I couldn't recommend this any higher. Details of this offer are below in today's episode description. So I've no experience of around the world. My only experience is reading like Jules Verne's novels. And I think he done it in a hot air balloon. So <laughs> it's not that applicable. So where did you start out and which direction do you go? Like what's the first countries you're tackling? So we started out, we actually started from the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin. And that's a bit of a nod to Jenny Gray and the female record holder. But we got family in the area as well. Um, and we wanted to start like on the continent. 
And then we kind of went slightly south. So we went down through Czechia into Austria, Slovakia, and then into Hungary, Romania and Bulgaria. And then came across like uh, through Turkey and through Istanbul and then came up to Georgia. Um, we then had a bit that we, yeah, there was no kind of realistic way to kind of get through with the current political climate. So we kind of skipped across to India. We did a leg in India. So where did you have to skip through? So, um, well, all the routes. So you couldn't get through Russia. We couldn't get into Iran, um, Afghanistan, places like that. We had hoped to get across to Kazakhstan, but then we couldn't get into Azerbaijan at the time because the land borders were still closed due to COVID. So that kind of mid- Middle Eastern bit was a really tricky bit to you know, ideally you'd have an unbroken line kind of riding across all continents, but there just wasn't a way to do it. So, yeah, we skipped across to India and then we had to do the same, skipping over um, Myanmar as well to get to Thailand. We came down to Thailand, into Malaysia, Singapore, and then down to Perth in Australia, did the south coast of Australia, both islands in New Zealand, went across to Canada, did the width of Canada, and then came back up through Europe, through Portugal, Spain, France, Belgium, Holland, back into Germany. <laughs> Absolutely epic. So you were saying you didn't go into Russia, but is there places that you're like, obviously Russia with the Ukraine conflict was probably a total no-go, but yeah. is there places where you're like, oh, we could go here, we could not? It's like quite uh, unstable political, but it's relatively safe. Did you go through places like that? I don't think we had anywhere that was really, really like that in the end. I think kind of the, the riskiest places might have been like Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, things like that. But as I say, we were hoping by the time we got to Azerbaijan, the um, land borders be open, but they weren't. So we didn't even get that far. But yeah, it, even places like India was was kind of tricky enough culturally, just having kind of, you know, it, we'd, we'd never been to India before and just the cultural differences kind of compared to how, you know, the intensity of our trip, I think it'd be wonderful if you're like cycle touring really slowly and you could kind of experience these things. But when you're on a bit of a mission and you've got to get somewhere every day and you've got to you've got to get the food and do this and do that, it's very hard to explain to people. Um, so that made, yeah, even places like that and kind of Southeast Asia and some of the more remote parts of Australia and Canada are really tough because it was just you know, it's not set up for you to be kind of piling through there as fast as we were. I spoke to Mark Ballmount on the podcast, uh, Ultra Endurance Legend, and yes. he has the solo mail around the world record in around 80 days. But at one point he was, I think it was the same day or two days in a row, he got, first he got knocked down and then he got robbed. Did you face any sort of uh, confrontations like that? We, we didn't have any conversations as such. We were really lucky. We had a lot of support from, you know, people on the road. We did have a rather nasty crash in Malaysia where we got piled into the back of with two kids on a motorcycle that were just racing. And that was that was a real kind of moment where we had to like weigh up the safety of the trip. And it was like, do we even want to continue with this? Luckily, we had a kind of soft landing and um, I had some bruised ribs. It wrecked two of the panniers. But apart from that, it was like just bumps and scratches. It could have been a lot, lot worse. But I think then that's that's hanging your head. I mean, riding a road bike has an inherent risk if you're on the roads. Doing it every day for six months, there's kind of a, it almost a guarantee something is going to happen. Yeah, I was about to say, that. I remember I rode the bike full time for a few years and people would say to me, oh, you, you crash, you're crashing an awful lot. And I was like, yeah, but if you actually average out how many hours I'm on the roads, 
compared to you, like I'm not crashing very much at all. It's just, you know, your typical person, even a competitive cyclist might ride 10, 15 hours a week. But if you're full-time and you're riding 30, 35 hours a week, obviously you've three times the chances of somebody who's riding 10 hours a week. And then you can multiply that again by whatever factor for you guys. You're on the road basically dusk till dawn, seven days a week for, you know, an entire year. Yeah, and I think it says something to the fact that that was the only real incident. We had another close shave in Germany, but then again, that was a dark road, lots of traffic. I think it says something that actually that was the kind of major incident we did have, but we did have a sense that the roads there were the most dangerous that we were on. In Germany? Um, no, in, in Malaysia, um, it was just, it felt a bit lawless. Um, there's a lot of motorbikes kind of speeding at very high speeds. In India and Thailand, they seem a bit, lot slower pace, a lot more relaxed, but it just felt a bit crazy in Malaysia. So it almost wasn't a huge surprise when something did happen there. It must have been interesting to watch those cultural shifts as you went through the countries. Like, where was the most aggressive in terms of traffic was Malaysia, but did you notice like a most laid back at the opposite end of that spectrum? Um, yeah, I suppose, you know, Europe is always very set up for, for cycling, I think. And coming back into Portugal was actually a really nice surprise. Um, you know, we didn't, we spent, I don't know, it was less than two whole days there, but it felt very different given that we'd been uh, about 40 days, 45 days or something in Canada before that. And they'd been friendly-ish. There'd been nothing to, you know, nothing wrong with it. But coming back to Portugal, you've got people waving, you know, if you've got a toot for the horn, it's friendly. All the old lads outside the cafes were like smiling and waving and um, it was just a really nice reception. And I think Europe has kind of got that cycling culture where it's kind of, you know, you're held as, as in some kind of prestige if you're doing something on a bike as opposed to what, what are those weirdos doing? Why are they on my road? I think there's something a little bit disarming about a tandem as well, which you don't get as a solo bike. People now in this increasingly hostile cars, bikes, us versus them environment, people look at a bike as an obstacle. But having ridden the tandem quite a bit, you don't really encounter that same level of hostility. People look at it and see it as a little bit of a novelty and are kind of slowing down to see. And you hear the same joke like 22,000 times a day. Is your man on the back pedaling or what? So I'm yeah, sure it yeah. was. Is the girl on the back pedaling? Yeah, she's got her feet up on the back. Yeah, we only had that about 2,000 times, I think. But, <laughs> but yeah, no, it does. It evokes smiles. And yeah, you know, it, you do get the occasional, like, what you're doing on my road kind of thing. But yeah, on the whole, people are, are happy to see you. And um, yeah, I think it was kind of at the beginning end of the trip, it was something. I think it might have been hungry, but we, we were getting like a lot of honks from lorries at first. We were like, oh my goodness, why are they so upset with us? And then we figured out when we actually caught sight of a face, no, they're, they're just being friendly. They just, it's a bit of an inappropriate use of a horn, but no, they're just like, hi, you're on the road. Good to see you. Yeah. So it's, it does, it makes people smile. Where was the place that you didn't expect would be so nice to cycle in terms of ecosystem, the the people around there, how welcome they were, the local foods. Like somebody listening to the podcast, if they're looking for a little bit of a road less traveled experience, where would you recommend? Yeah, that's an interesting one actually, because <laughs> I'd probably be close to saying from from the cycling point of view, Europe again. Actually, interesting, it didn't didn't occur to me earlier, but New Zealand was absolutely mind-blowing and amazing. And people always go, oh, where would you go back to? And we would go back to New Zealand. But particularly in the North Island, we got a lot of road rage there. That was actually one of the places where 
people were not friendly and they were very upset we were in their way on the road. Um, so we'd love to go back to New Zealand because we were, we were in New Zealand for like eight and a half days. We flew through it, so we missed so much. And it actually made it really, really hard when you're cycling past all these like wonderful holiday destinations and vineyards and spas. And so we'd love to go back, but actually I don't think I'd want to ride a bike there. And the same again, like the Canadian Rockies were just, they were absolutely beautiful and immense. And again, we could have spent months there exploring, but yeah, riding a bike up them, that was, that was really, really tough, particularly the amount of weight we had. Maybe like some light carbon road bikes. <laughs> I always find as well the disconnect between people's expectations of Canada and America and the reality of it. I didn't find either of them too pleasant to cycle in in terms of the level of aggression from drivers and how accommodating they were of cyclists on the road. But you contrast that, as I say, to Europe, it's totally the opposite. You do typically engender a lot of goodwill as you just travel through the country. Yeah, as I say, I think Europe just has a respect for it. Um, we, we did suffer a bit in as well because we're almost not used to that. So, you know, we're not set up for what are sometimes mandatory bike lanes. And um, so in Belgium, Holland, Germany, where they've got these specific lanes, we'd, we'd sometimes miss them because we're, we're not expecting to see them. And then you'd be in trouble for being on the road and there's a specific lane for you and you can't get the curb. And it's wonderful that cycling infrastructure is there, but it just I think it just goes to show how, you know, we, we are so almost blinded to the fact that there are countries that set themselves up for cyclists. And, you know, we'd stop at every junction forgetting that that these drivers have to legally give way in places like Holland and Belgium. They have to stop for you. So it's good, but it's it's funny to try and get your brain to do that cultural shift. Tandems aren't designed to be a bike. And by that, I mean, like equipment <laughs> isn't purpose built. Like there's no tandem chain. It's two chains connected together. And anyone that's fixed the chain and rejoined the chain knows there's a weakness in that. So now you have two chains joined together, luggage, two people, were you encountering many mechanical issues along the way? We had relatively few considering how far the bike went. Um, and we actually, we had a load of support from the Tandem shop who kind of built the bike from us. And the, the people there, particularly Pete, who has lived tandems all his life, has a wealth of knowledge. So things like we we didn't actually have a chain as our timing chain. So we had a chain on the gears on the back of the derailleur, but the chain that links our two pedals was in fact a belt drive. The rubber belt, yeah, I've ridden them. They're yeah. nice. They fall off a lot though, in my experience, especially if you guys may, maybe not were sprinting out of corners and stuff as much, but they, they do have a tendency to drop a little bit, especially under high torque. Yeah, ours seemed fine. And, you know, we had it tension and Steve was kind of te- checking the tension to the point where there's even an app where you can like check the sound of it against this app or something. <laughs> I think it was something crazy. But That's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, there, there's more kind of parts coming through, but particularly with the um, uh, advent of e-bikes, a lot of the forces that go through are, are the problem with the tandem. So, you know, rear wheels, buckling, um, having sufficient brake power, for example. But now we've got e-bikes on the scene. They're heavier and they've got bigger power, so that's applicable to tandems. So a lot of those parts can be used on on tandems, and that's kind of revolutionising things quite a lot. So, yeah, we, we were kind of using quite a lot of parts that come from there, and that made a really big difference. And, you know, we're so lucky with the tandem we got. It's, it's such high spec. It's completely different to ride from kind of the aluminium steel tandems we'd ridden before. And Did you have a custom built? Yeah, we did. So we're really lucky. So it's, it's a co-motion tandem and it has to be coupled because we have to split it into two to 
be able to pack it to go on the planes. So Co-Motion, um, actually, yeah, they custom spec'd it to our, you know, individual heights and everything as well. And that was massively ben- beneficial for the, for the comfort and everything. And then, yeah, we selected like all the parts individually. Did you have disc brakes? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, they were brilliant. So, yeah, yeah. And (laughs) we've got disc brakes on other bikes, but we've never had them before on a tandem. We used to have like this really old drum brake and it was just, yeah, it would not have been up to the Rockies. (laughs) Yeah, because I've raced on tandem road races and on a wet descent with carbon rims and rim brakes, it's like, you're like, I barely have any stopping power whatsoever here. I can't even imagine throwing equipment and panniers onto that as well. It'd just be zero brakes. Yeah, no, the, the, the rim brakes were, were just amazing. Uh, not rim brakes, sorry, the disc brakes were just amazing. And yeah, we were like desperately looking after those rotors, like packaging them all up every time separately and everything. We had to fly with them because they were just too good to risk damaging. Did the trip take any little bit of a mental toll on you? I know sometimes I'm in these idyllic locations and I've, you know, this amazing adventure on front of me and I kind of wake up and I'm like, oh, I don't want to do this. And then I'm kind of pinching myself saying like, cop on, people are at home in work and they'd love to trade places with you, but you're here sulking in during the coolest experience of your life. What's going on with you? I haven't been ever able to explain that. I just kind of pushed through and that kind of cloud normally fades away after a day or two. How did you manage that mental health element or did you experience days where you're like, oh, I don't want to do this? Yeah, it was really tough to particularly towards the back end. You know, I've kind of mentioned we had like problems mounting up and they kind of came, well, it was a point pretty early on when we had to decide if this was like a holiday or is this a record attempt? You know, they're they're two different things. And if you're going to stop and see the sights and have a good time, that's one thing that we were determined to make this a hard record. We we wanted this to be, you know, it's nowhere near Mark Beaumont's achievement, but we wanted that kind of level of seriousness and that, you know, yeah, somebody might go out and beat it, but we want them to have tried bloody hard to, to have done that. So, um, yeah, it quickly became very focused on the record. So it didn't become about enjoyment, about stopping somewhere nice, about eating nice food, having cultural experience. It was about getting that record. And with that, there was a massive mental toll as well. Um and particularly, yeah, as you know, I've mentioned Stevie was suffering more than I at the back end of the trip. It there was a lot of recovery from that. I mean, physically, he couldn't sit on a saddle until, you know, we got back in December. It was about February or March before he could sit on a bike again. But mentally as well, there was a lot of kind of come down after that. And this kind of theory of like post-adventure blues, you've done something massive. And then it's the kind of void after that is is quite hard to deal with. And we kind of knew from, you know, reports from other kind of riders other people that done big adventures to expect that but no it was it was really really tough both at the time and afterwards as well yeah i kind of have my own theory on this it's slightly different we call it in racing called post-stage race blues and it has a lot of similarities but with bike packing i think it's more severe my theory on it is when we're bike packing or on these sort of long adventure where it's a clearly defined target each day I think it's nearly a transport back to evolutionary, something we're very comfortable doing. Getting up in the morning with a single task, accomplishing that task and having that sort of circle closed where you're like, I set a task, I completed the task, now I eat. And that's what your life becomes when you're bikepacking. We're starting, we need to cover 150 kilometers today. We had one goal, we completed that one goal and then we celebrate by eating and then we go again tomorrow. There's a simplicity to life, but there's also like a really nice reward system 
built into it. And then when we get back to life, which is so multifaceted, we don't have that. Like I have a to-do list that I've never got through. Like I'm never getting to the end of this to-do list. It just, it keeps adding new things on each day. So you never go to bed when I'm at home, at least I don't, with a sense that I completed absolutely everything I had to complete today. I can chill out now. Yeah, no, I quite agree with that. It does, as much as it was really tough physically, mentally on the road, yeah, I can see there's simplicity to it. All you had to do every day was get to your destination, find somewhere safe to sleep, find something to eat. And that, that was it. And then you get back to the, the real world um, and suddenly you've got to worry about like going to the shops, putting the bins out, you know, paying your home insurance. <laughs> it's, it's all these little things that, that kind of creep into your life that you kind of go, oh, yeah, I've, I've managed to avoid doing that for six months. And actually, that was great. <laughs> so, yeah, I think, think that's very true. Has it changed your philosophy on life, on the way you approach challenges or opportunities? I think I think we always had this kind of element in us anyway, but I think it, it has kind of, it's made you think about what's important. And I think, yeah, you know, knowing that you can live like that for six months and we're probably not going to become one of these people that, you know, pack one pannier and set off around the world for the next five years. But at the same time, it makes you realise, do you know what, some of these things aren't that important and jobs, careers are, are one thing, but maybe there's something more to life than that. And just spending that amount of time away from family and friends as well, I think, you know, that kind of really made you feel that those connections are so important and trying to stay connected with people is, is, is you know, a really important thing as well because we're quite lonely on the road sometimes because you've got a social media connection, but you very quickly realise that that's, that's not a real thing. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're all starting to realise that. <laughs> In retrospect, what does the achievements, what does it mean to you? both personally and collectively as a team. Yeah, I mean it's it's funny because it's 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 massive and it's taken a long time for it to kind of sink in and I, th- I think it it's it's only just now you know it took a lot of processing after and we kind of we did all the stuff and we're like hey we've done that. and I don't think we really believed it. I don't think our feet really touched the ground for a long long time. Um, and we've had a very kind of cathartic process. I had a lot of kind of um, footage of process for YouTube. We've actually, I've just written a book about it all from my point of view, but Stevie's kind of gone through that and proofread it all. So we've, we've kind of relived it all quite a lot recently. And now, yeah, because the book's just come out too. So we're kind of talking about it again. And it's, yeah, it's kind of made it seem real. And I think we're now at the point of going, oh my God, we did this. I mean, we literally stood up in front of a crowd of people recently and I kind of I read out the record to them and got a round of applause. And I was like, that was us. Yeah, we did that. That's amazing. So I think we are massively proud, but I think it's one of those things that at the time it was almost inconceivable what we'd done that I'm hoping it will just kind of stay with us. And that's, that's our Everest. Everybody goes, what are you going to do next? But we're not going to go and try and do it faster. We're not going to try and recreate it. That That is our, our goal. And we'll go and do different things. There'll be other challenges. But for us, that is, you know, nobody can take that away from us now. Will you lean more into we're going to go bikepacking for a holiday or will you lean more into we need to find another record to break for the next challenge? Um, I don't know about doing another Guinness record again. That that had its own challenges as well. Um We'd really be really keen to take the tandem touring, probably in Europe, you know, nice and easy paced. And yeah, I think it, it's sometimes a challenge for us to slow down enough to do that. But I think that's something we're both really keen to do now. But I think we're kind of keen on different challenges too. So I think there'll be 
slightly different things. I don't think we want to be pigeonholed into those are the guys that are going to do like every time a record. So like last year, I did a bit of triathlon and that was good, really good because it just completely mixed things up a bit. Um, and it kind of broke that mold of, yeah, she's just that girl that sits on the back of Stevie's tandem as well. So <laughs> it was good. You could bike swim and run across the whole world. We could. Um, <laughs> I can safely say we will not be doing that. <laughs> what advice, Laura, would you give to someone who's listened to the podcast now and they're contemplating, maybe not something as epic, but they're contemplating their own personal little challenge? Yeah, I think, you know, this was, it's very easy to say, just go out and do it. But Actually, there, there was a lot behind this. You know, it's 18 months in the planning. There was a lot of commitment. It didn't just happen by accident. And I think, you know, setting yourself small goals is a great way to kind of build your confidence and to like put stepping stones in place. But I think for something like this, you know, you have to be committed. You have to put in the groundwork. So whether it is the training on the bike, whether it is the logistical planning, or whether it is just getting out there and like learning how it works to camp on the bike, to cook on the bike, to find places to stay. There was so many little aspects that came together to make this trip happen that, yeah, I think do, do your groundwork is, is you know, one of my big bits of advice for, for a big scale challenge like this. I believe more couples break up trying to put a tent up than any other activity in the world. <laughs> yeah. I think between tents and tandems, they're probably, you know, two of the key, key points of divorce. <laughs> but yes. Laura, thank you very much for taking the time to relive your story and I will link up all your various social media, your YouTube links, your book and everything in the bio for people to check out. Thanks for joining me. Oh, thank you so much.